Amen. Please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We won't get there for a period of time, so you can put a little uh, bookmark in there perhaps, and I will be spending quite a bit of time in uh, other places, but I will have those other verses up on the screen for you to read along. So please uh, do that as you feel fit and ready to do. Today is the day that many people have been waiting for. It's the day of the Super Bowl. Particularly for those of us in Los Angeles, it's exciting because our hometown team, the LA Rams, are playing the Cincinnati Bengals for the championship. And more than that, they are playing the game in their home stadium right down the street in Inglewood. It's only the second time one of the teams has played in the Super Bowl in its home stadium. Well, the first time was last season when the Tampa Bay Buccaneers played in their home stadium. Tampa Bay won, so hopefully history repeats itself today. Super Bowl 56. Super Bowl 56. In Roman numerals, which the NFL usually uses to number the Super Bowl, it's LVI. Here's the logo. Super Bowl 56, LVI. And you can see I tweaked it and stuck some other letters in there to make it say loving, super loving. I wanted to use the occasion of the Super Bowl and football to show how super loving God is to us and how we who are loved by God should live our lives in light of that love. Love is an appropriate theme because tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is the holiday in our culture where People celebrate romantic love. We all know about red hearts, red roses, boxes of chocolates, etc., etc. In fact, just as the Super Bowl is not just a football game, but a massive commercial endeavor, so is Valentine's Day, also is one of America's major consumer holidays behind Christmas and Halloween. According to the National Retail Federation, people participating in Valentine's Day Consumerism are expected to spend an average of $175 on Valentine's Day, and they predict Americans as a whole will spend $43 billion on Valentine's Day. A big part of the reason why we feel social pressure to spend money on Valentine's Day is because enterprising business people about 180 years ago started making a big deal out of it in order to make more money. Of course, they wanted to sell things. 180 years ago in the 1840s, and now we're all sucked up in the marketing of it. But Valentine's Day actually has its roots in Christian history. So to get us started on our Super Bowl football analogy, let's start with the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame. We are talking about love. So who's in the Hall of Fame of love? St. Valentine himself. Historians are actually not too clear about the actual deeds of Valentine. And here's some artistic renderings of him. Uh, very unlikely to actually be his likeness if you meet him in heaven someday. Right? But uh, there appears to be at least two and possibly three and maybe even more Christian martyrs named Valentine because Valentinus was a common name in the Roman Empire. Uh, I said they were martyrs. That's right. They were killed, they died for believing in Jesus. 
One of them was a priest in Rome who was executed by the Roman emperor on February 14th, 269 in the year of our Lord. There are different, differing accounts of what he actually did, but one story is that he was imprisoned for performing secret, illegal weddings for young couples in order to get the guy out of military service. That's pretty romantic. Then he and the emperor started having conversations. The emperor was trying to convince uh, Valentinus to uh, renounce Christianity and worship the pagan Roman gods and Valentine was doing the same thing with the Roman emperor, got the emperor mad, the emperor executed him. Okay? And that happened on February 14th. So another Valentine was the bishop of the city of Terni in Italy, not too far from Rome also. He was also under arrest for performing secret weddings, and while in jail, he preached Jesus to the judge. The judge had a blind daughter. And Valentine performed a miracle in which the girl received her sight back from God. This led to the conversion of the entire household to Christianity, which, again, really irritated and infuriated the Roman authorities, and so he, too, was tortured and beheaded. Turns out that Valentine wrote the girl, the formerly blind girl, a note right before he died and signed it, From Your Valentine. Okay, so that apparently was the first Valentine note. He was also martyred on February 14th around that same time. So you can see how historians think that maybe these are different stories about the same individual. Right? Now, about 200 later, years later, in the late 400s, when Christianity uh, by that time had now become legal, Valentine was named a saint by the church and given a feast day of February 14th, the day of his martyrdom. Now, the point of putting Valentine in the Hall of Fame of Love is not actually the historical facts which are somewhat lost to memory. I suppose we will find them out, like I said, when uh, we are with the Lord for the rest of eternity and we can ask people uh, about all of their personal history ourselves. Right? The point is this. What would make this man, or maybe these men, and many other Christian martyrs be willing to go to death in order to believe in Jesus? What would make them willing to sacrifice themselves for their beliefs? This is the point of my sermon. It's God's super love. God's super love. So, second point on your outline, the rules. If life were a game like football, the rules of the game would have to be written down so we could all follow them. And they are in the Bible. The Bible tells us many things, but some of what the Bible tells us is the law of God. And if you turn to Matthew 22, you can read about how Jesus taught that there are two rules that are the basis for all of the law of God. We call them the great commandments. In Matthew 22, it says up here, a lawyer asked Jesus a question to test him, trying to trap him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, the whole Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh as we call it. 
Now, if you think about these commandments, these rules, for just half a second, and you are even remotely honest with yourself, you realize that there is no way to obey these commandments perfectly, is there? There is no way that 100% of the time I can commit all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind and all of my strength to loving God. I'll fail within moments. Okay? And there is no way that I can love my neighbor as myself. I do things for myself in a blink of an eye without even thinking about it that I would not do for somebody else even if they asked me to. Just think about that for a second. So can you love the Lord your God and keep the first commandment, the great commandment? No. Can you keep the second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself? You cannot. This actually brings us to another thing that's on your outline. On the back of your outline, there's a little box here, uh, and it says uh, the new city catechism question for this week, question number seven. Question number seven this week, because we're going through these 52 questions of the catechism, one per Sunday. This is the seventh Sunday of the year. So question seven is, what does the law of God require? These two commandments, what does this require? And the answer, which I hope we've all been spending time memorizing during the course of the year, the, question to, the answer to memorize this week is this. What does the law of God require? Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. Again, take about half a second to think about this and see whether you are always doing what God commands and never doing what God forbids. I think I just broke one. And if you think to yourself, well, look, it's probably okay. I didn't murder anybody or commit adultery recently. But that's not what the scripture says, because the scripture says in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point, just one point, he has become guilty of all of it. Whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Okay? So the fact that we cannot keep these commandments perfectly, does that seem like good news or bad news to you? Bad news. Very bad news. Okay, very bad news. Keep that in mind. Okay, because we've all broken the rules of the game. Next on your outline, the creator of the game. Well, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. We also learned that in the catechism. Okay, so we are talking about God. And what is the nature of God? God is an all-powerful, all-just, all-loving, everywhere being who created the world and everything in it, okay? So he makes the rules. He makes all of the laws. And he created some of the things that we pretty much just take for granted, like the speed of light is a constant. Who determined what the speed of light was going to be? God, right? How does gravity work? Gravity is one of the four fundamental forces of nature. God made gravity. 
What about the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter? Pi. Who calculated pi and made pi pi? God did. So he makes the rules, how atoms and molecules hold together, all of that stuff. That's the natural laws. God made them, and we cannot break them. Okay? But he also makes moral law. He makes moral law that can also not be broken, and he has the right to do it because he is also the creator and the owner of everything. Right? He owns the entire creation, Psalm 24.1 says, right? for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. He's also the commissioner, if you think about the commissioner of football. God governs the whole universe. Right? He's the head coach. He gives us instruction that we are supposed to follow. That is what a coach does. What else is he? He's the general manager. We're going to talk about this in a few moments, but the general manager on a football team is the one who drafts and trades and selects all the players that are going to be on the team. It's his job or her job to put together a roster of all the players. Right? We're going to talk about drafting in a, in a minute. He's also the referee. He determines when laws are broken, when rules are broken. Right? And unlike the guys at the stadium who wear black and white stripes, God doesn't need instant replay right? or a review from New York because God sees everything and nothing can be hidden from God. He is that powerful. He is that everywhere. So he's the referee. We talked about Valentine being in the Hall of Fame of Love, but God is way beyond Valentine in terms of love. He loves us so deeply. And that is despite the fact that God's earth is full of opponents. Okay, that's the next point on your outline. The opponents. The Super Bowl and most sports games have competitors that are opponents of each other. Well, God also has a team, and he also has opponents. Right? The most obvious you might be thinking of is Satan and his demons. Satan and the other fallen angels. Sometime before the creation of man, it seems, right, right between Genesis 2 and 3, Satan, who was Lucifer, got prideful and was cast out of heaven, and he fell. And he took a third of the angels with him. Okay? But, you know who else is an opponent of God? You know who else is an enemy of God? All of us. All of us, apart from the grace of God, are enemies and opponents of God. Because what happened in Genesis chapter 3 wasn't entirely Satan's fault, was it? The serpent tempted Adam and Eve, but Adam and Eve, of their own free will and volition, decided to rebel against God. And they broke God's one rule that he had made at that time, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they did anyway. And because of that, we who are Adam and Eve's offspring, and all of us are Adam's and Eve's offspring, have inherited the same sinful fallen nature that Adam and Eve created for themselves. Okay? We are God's enemies until we're not, because he rescues us, because he loves us. Okay? Now, what are the penalties? In football, there are a lot of rules and a lot of penalties. Sometimes it makes the game go slower, right? Every time they throw the yellow flag, right? But the penalty for breaking God's 
law, God's moral law, is much worse than 15 yards and an automatic first down. It is everlasting, continual, conscious existence in hell. That is very bad news. And you might think to yourself, how is that possibly fair? Because James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at just one point, one minor little point, I failed to love my neighbor just for one moment. How is that fair? It's fair because when you sin against someone or something, the penalty, the punishment, the egregiousness of that crime rises along with the value or the holiness of that thing. If I stepped on a bug, no big deal. If I stepped on a baby, very big deal. And God, as I said, is perfect and all-wonderful and holy. So you sin even a very little sin against an all-powerful, all-holy God, and the punishment, of course, is infinite and infinitely bad and eternally, everlastingly bad. This is very bad news. So we have a lot of penalties against us, especially these, right? The personal fouls. Next on your outline, the draft. Okay? In a draft, the teams get to pick players for their teams. And it's usually the general manager or some brain trust of the team. And God sort of does this too, except we don't call it a draft. Theologically, we call it the doctrine of election. The glorious doctrine in which God in his sovereignty selects sinful human beings in order to save them. Now, a major difference is that in a draft, teams select players because the players are good. They have talent. They have skills. They can catch the ball. They can throw the ball. They can block really well. They can tackle people, right? They have merit. When God elects and saves a sinner, there is no merit on the behalf of the sinner. We have all sinned and should be condemned. God saves sinners just because. Just because he loves us. Just because of his grace and mercy. He shows super love to us. This is pointed out numerous times in Scripture. For example, I have Ephesians 1, a few verses up here. Verse 3, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would by be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In the beloved. See, being drafted by God, being elected by God, is better than being on a championship team. He adopts us into his family. We become part of God's family through his only begotten son. So we are all adopted sons through Jesus. But God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are similar in substance, equal in power and glory. God the Father sent God the Son to be the Savior of the world. The third person of the Trinity, as we call it, is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, who is also God, his ministry, his job is to convert the dead spiritual hearts of sinners 
and turn them to God. God loves us so much that He sent His only Son and He sends us His Holy Spirit, a gift. And this is all by God's doing, all by God's grace. We would not choose God except for this, except for this grace of His. In John 6, we read about this in verse 37, 39, and 65. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So it comes from God. Going to God is God bringing, uh, giving us to Jesus. Right? Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. See, we're going to die because the penalty for sin is death. But Jesus, just as he rose, we will also be raised by him. Verse 65, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So it seems like as you're sitting here listening, as somebody shared the good news with you, you came to God. You felt like that was a choice. That is how we experience it. But later, as we read the scriptures, for example, John 6.65, we realize that no one can come to Jesus unless God has granted, to it, granted it to him in the first place. Which is quite amazing. Because that's not how we experience it, but that's how we learn that it actually happened. Okay? And the result of God's super love for us is that we are free to love. So I ask you to turn to... 1 John 4, uh, and verse 19 is one of our verses for today, and it says this very simply, we love because God first loved us. We love because God first loved us. We are not capable of loving God on our own. Only by the grace of God, only by the love of God can we then love. This is God's love to us. Super loving God, showering his super love upon us. Okay, so how does this happen? Well, this is where we come to the next point on our outline, the MVP and the captain. All sports teams have captains, and Jesus is our captain, right? I mentioned earlier that Jesus is the second person of the triune God, the Son. He's been the Son for all eternity. He will always be the Son He will always be God, but at the right time, the Son, who is God, took on a human nature. So he has a God nature, and now he also has a human nature because he became one like us in order to save us. This is so amazing. No amount of fantasy or science fiction could make this up, that There would be a a triune God, and one of these persons of God, who is God, has a fully God nature, doesn't lessen his God nature, but keeps his fully God nature, and then adds to it a fully human nature. But not a human nature like ours, which is fallen, because he was born of a virgin and conceived by the Holy Spirit, the third person of God. Jesus was a sinless man. And he lived a sinless life that none of us could ever hope to live. Because we have a sinful nature and therefore we sin. He did not have a sinful nature and he did not sin. Even though he was tempted in all ways like us, the scriptures say, yet without sin. God does this 
God takes the righteousness of Christ and he transfers it to us. He imputes it to us. And then he takes our sinfulness, all of our sin, and he transfers it, he imputes it to Jesus. So Jesus would die for our sins. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. The exchange of God's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness for our sin. And how does Jesus love us? Romans 5, 8, we read this this morning. But God demonstrates His own love toward us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're still sinners, and Christ died for us. Such love this is. Also in Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul writes, Christ lives in me just as He does in all believers. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Such love. And Jesus is not just our captain, He's also our MVP, our most valuable player. There's no one else who really comes close, really. Right? Later today, after the game is over, one of the players, uh, undoubtedly from the winning team, will be named the most valuable player, or MVP, and Jesus is obviously that for us. Okay? And speaking of winning, let's now talk about the big win that God and Jesus have achieved for us. The win. Of course, someone is going to win the Super Bowl today. The Rams or the Bengals. In the Super Bowl of God's love, God wins. Even though we are guilty of breaking all the rules and, of, and deserving of all the penalties, even though we were enemies of God and opponents of God, He nevertheless, in His grace and mercy, drafted us, elected us, and Jesus gave Himself up for us so that we could win. God's win through Christ is our win. And this is what we call the gospel or the good news. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal or really everlasting life. Okay. All you have to do to experience God's love is to believe in His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all you have to do. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because we can't become not sinners on our own. We will always keep breaking the laws, the rules, God's laws, God's word. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We cannot earn it. All you have to do is believe. That's not earning. That's a gift from God. That's grace. Listen to how the gospel is framed by the Apostle John in terms of love. Again, we turn back to 1 John 4, 15-19. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, okay, that's what we just did, we believe in the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. God lives in us. And by this, love is perfected with us, completed with us, 
so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Okay? The day of judgment would be a day of fear for us, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus took our sin. And if you believe that, you are sinful, but Jesus was not, and that he died for your sin, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself, but you throw yourself at the mercy of God at the foot of the cross on which Jesus died, then you can be forgiven for your sins. And then you will have no fear in the day of judgment, but rather confidence. Because there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 15-19. So that's the good news, right? Now, that being the good news, there is also a new commandment, a new rule for the winners, the winning team. Okay? That brings us to the other part of our text today, John 13 and 15. Now recall that there were two great commandments in all the law of God that all the law of God is based on. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We are not capable of super loving, but we still have these commandments hanging over our heads. Right? But for those who have been saved by the gospel, Jesus gives us a new commandment. Not something to hang over our heads, not something to condemn us, but something that we are now free in, in the great victory that, that God has given us through Jesus Christ, his son. And he gives us this new rule, and this is how he says it in John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give you, okay, new commandment, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Key phrase here. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Incredibly, incredibly statement. We who are Christians are supposed to love one another. And what does it say here? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. It's for witness purposes. Witnesses that we are supposed to be to a lost and perishing world. So that when we love each other, people say, man, those people are different. Somehow, I don't understand. I'm going to go talk to them about it. And then we talk to them about Jesus. Right? But something is different about us. We love one another. We love one another. And what is the definition of love? The definition of love, as we frequently say from the pulpit here, is a commitment of the will. Okay, so you have a will. You commit your will to the true good of another. Not just what they want, not just what they feel like, but what is truly good for them. Right? I'm not really loving my kids if I feed them donuts all day and not broccoli and meat. Carter's back there. He loves it. He's a... Uh, He's shaking his, uh, he's nodding his head because he wants to eat donuts, or maybe he doesn't. But anyway, he's nodding his head, and right, he understands that the more loving thing to do is to feed your kids good food, healthy food, and not junk, at least not all the time. Super Bowl's coming up. 
right? So you, it's a commitment of the will to the true good of another. That is what God and Christ have done for us, the Holy Spirit as well. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have loved us, committed his will to our true good, loved us and gave himself up for us. Okay? In John 15, John, Jesus repeats this command and then expands on it. Okay? Well, uh, so turn to John 15, verse 12. He, re- he says this, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Same thing he said in John 13. Okay? In verse 13, he then says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That he lay down his life for his friends. Again, love is a commitment of the will to the true good of another. Jesus has fulfilled this definition of love for us in that he has laid down his life for us. Earlier in chapter 10, Jesus had said this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Okay, then Jesus calls us his friends. Verse 14, you are my friends, right? Because he said he lays down his life for his friends. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Whoa. And then he writes, uh, sorry, it's written by John what Jesus had said, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all the things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So Jesus comes and and loves us and he he walks the earth with with us and he tells us what, uh, what God the Father wants us to know about the gospel of Jesus. And then he calls us friends and he doesn't call them slaves anymore. What is this all about? Now, first, Jesus says that they are his friends if they do what he commands them. Now, this should really make us pause because of those two other great commandments that we cannot hope to keep, right? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And now here's a new commandment. And then he says, you know, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And I'm thinking to myself, shoot, I've already not done what Jesus has commanded me, so that does, does that make me not his friend? Well, we've got to think about that, right? Because some people think of Jesus as a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? They've been preached the gospel. Your sins can be forgiven if you believe in Jesus. They're like, oh, that sounds like a great idea because I have committed a lot of sins, and then if, if all my sins can be forgiven, then... I can just keep on going and committing sins, right? And then they'll all be forgiven and I'll be good. A lot of people think this. And it's very dangerous, not to mention wrong and unbiblical. Okay? They think they can sin all they want because their sin has, begin, begin, uh, be, has been forgiven because of Jesus. And they think that they don't have to work on repenting from their sin. And that is not true. And there's a whole other chapter of the Bible, Romans chapter 6, that speaks against this abuse of God's grace. Now consider this, friends. If you refuse to repent, if you refuse to do what Jesus commands you, you might not be saved by Christ at all. You may not be in Christ. You may not be abiding in God. This is something definitely seriously to think about, right? Otherwhere in the scripture it says... uh, Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. We should always be testing ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. This is what the scriptures mean by that. Second, and we emphasize this every Sunday from this pulpit, 
Obedience comes after freedom. Obedience comes after freedom. We cannot earn our salvation. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor, to earn God's forgiveness, to earn right standing before God. That is not the way the law works. The law, as Pastor Matt has preached to us so many times, does not have the power to save. The law only has the power to condemn. So God has put the law out there as a teacher for us, a tutor for us, a coach, if you will, to show us that we cannot be with God by obeying the law. We can only be with God by throwing ourselves at the mercy of God, and then God forgives us out of his love. Okay? The laws have no power to transform us, and there is nothing that we can do in order to earn God's favor anyway. The only thing that we can do is throw ourselves at his mercy. So third, why does Jesus say, no longer do I call you slaves? Now, when did he say that? Okay. Let's see. He says that in John 8, a few chapters before. In John chapter 8, he had said to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are tr truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Everyone loves to quote that one, right? You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But they forget the context in which it was originally uttered, which is Jesus saying, if you continue in my word, then the truth will set you free. There's lots of people who don't want to follow Jesus, but they like saying that the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants, because they're Jewish, right? You were Abraham's descendants, and we have never yet been enslaved to anyone. Now, how is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever because he's an heir. So if the son, if the son, right, makes you free, you will be free indeed. Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So then, now it makes sense when Jesus says in, verse, uh, in chapter 15, uh, I no longer call you slaves, but I'm calling you friends. Because Jesus came to set the captives free. So we are free from slavery to sin. Okay? We, are saver, uh, we are free from slavery to sin. Okay. He then goes on to say in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Again, it's the draft. Election. God's sovereign purposes. Out of grace to save us. Okay. I chose you and I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain so that Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. There's that command again, love one another. Right? In terms of bearing fruit, uh, this passage in, in chapter 15 comes right after a whole other passage uh, where Jesus is talking about himself as being the true vine and that there are branches of this vine and the branches of the vine are going to bear fruit. The first part of chapter 15. And so this is what he continues on to say. He says, I did, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Now go and bear fruit. Right? By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
Okay, so again, this is for witness purposes that we have, are talking about. We, we want to go bear fruit. Okay, what is good fruit? Good fruit is good works. Uh, good fruit is repenting and refraining from sin. And as we talked about last Sunday out of 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, good fruit includes being generous and ready to share through giving. Okay. So this is the new commandment, the new rule for us who are winners. So that we can get more people, right? The best thing, the most loving thing, the best thing that we can do to commit our will to the true good of another is by sharing Jesus with them, right? Because nobody has a greater need than the need for their sin to be forgiven. And we who know this already should have the gospel ready on our lips. It's better news than if the Rams win later today, right? People on social media, yay Rams, yay Rams, oh, that was an amazing game, etc. I hope that happens, of course, right? Bengals fans think, think, think otherwise. But the better news, the good news, the best news of all is that Jesus has died for your sins, and that's the news that we should be sharing. So, we're the team, Right? And as the team, we might find ourselves on the bench, on the sidelines, a little bit, not feeling it. But you know what? Jesus died for us. So we should get off the bench and play the game. Get off the bench and play the game. Because guess what? It's already won. The game's already won. We just have to play it. More than 50 years ago in Super Bowl three, Joe Namath famously guaranteed the victory for his team, the New York Jets. Right? He says, we're going to win the Super Bowl. I guarantee it. Nobody thought that he, they would because they were super huge underdogs. But they did win. But they did have to play the game first. Right? Now, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day guarantees our victory as well. But we still have to get up and play. Jesus said, all authority is given to me on heaven and on earth. Now go. Right? He has authority. Now go. Jesus also said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not withstand it. We got to go storm the gates of hell. Yes, we are going to get persecuted. Yes, we are going to suffer. But we should expect nothing less because our team captain and MVP, Jesus, was persecuted and suffered and died at the hands of sinners. And besides which, we can't lose. In Romans chapter 8, we read this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword separate us from the love of Christ? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being to put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. really uplifting message, right? Verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Paul writes, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, that is to say fallen angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to se separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We can withstand these hardships because victory is guaranteed. Okay? 
Now, we live a very comfortable life here in Southern California. It's like summer in the middle of winter here. But we have brethren, we have brothers and sisters throughout the world, China, the Middle East, lots of different places where they are suffering terribly. And they must be asking themselves from day to day, moment to moment, why must I go through this? But here is the confidence that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a message of hope. Message of hope that we should strengthen us all the way to the end. So, we got to get in the game. Don't sideline yourself. Don't quit. All right. So, what do we do? We love one another. We've talked about this before. But there's a lot of different ways in which we can think about loving one another. It's been really grievous to many of us, I know, because we've talked about it over the last couple of years, the last several years. There is a distinct lack of love, even within the church, because of what? Because of race, and because of politics, and because of COVID, right? People going at each other. Ah, oh, they don't use this word necessarily, but basically they're saying, ah, oh, you believe X, Y, Z, you're a false teacher, like faithful people who otherwise love Jesus and preach his gospel more than other people. They, they, they accuse them falsely. They divide over this. It's very, very sad. Divide over politics. Divide over, over race relations. Divide over COVID. Right? You follow this political leader or that political leader or you follow this podcaster or that talking head on TV. Some of these people aren't even Christians and you would rather, people would rather uh, like bond with them as a group rather than with people that they know or their brethren. So I encourage you once again, love one another. We must love one another, brothers and sisters. Okay? We receive love from God vertically. He's above us. And then we bend that love out horizontally toward one another, and also toward our neighbors. We love our neighbors. I also want us to challenge us to love our neighbors to a greater extent. Okay? Um, and I have something very uh, sort of specific to talk about. It's not easy to talk about, but it relates to the Super Bowl, and that is a very dark side to money and sports, uh, particularly to the Super Bowl, although if you talk to law enforcement, they, they're very careful not to alienate uh, you know, the NFL or the Super Bowl or whatever, and, and corporate sponsors, and, and that is that sex trafficking always increases during the Super Bowl. While we're sitting here in church, we can be guaranteed that more young people, primarily girls, will be trafficked and sold and abused right this very minute. There's an organization called In Our Backyard that works to combat human trafficking not just during the Super Bowl, but every day in every major city in America. And our church was uh, connected with them and their allies through the FBI. The FBI has a Faith Leaders Roundtable that meets quarterly. And Delray Church was invited to join through one of our members who, uh, uh, who's an FBI agent. So it's been really uh, wonderful for me and Pastor Matt to be involved in this roundtable. Uh, they have, uh, in our backyard, has an insightful approach to uh, reach out to sex trafficking victims. The problem is that victims are hardly ever left alone 
by the people who are controlling and abusing them. Okay? The opportunity, though, on the other hand, is that almost everyone uses convenience stores, right? So the strategy is to get convenience stores involved in helping, okay? So volunteers in, uh, through in our backyard canvass the neighborhood convenience stores and ask them to put up freedom stickers, okay? Freedom stickers uh, in the restrooms because restrooms are sometimes the only place where uh, victims can get a few moments of privacy, right? This is what the freedom stickers look like. There's a hotline, it says, are you in trouble? Do you need help, right? Nobody's looking at them while they're using the restroom. They can write down that number, put in their phone, whatever, call later, right? Now, in addition, the convenience store workers get some light training on how to spot potential human trafficking victims and also what to do and what not to do if they suspect uh, human trafficking is going on because they're, they're seeing what's going on in their own stores, right? Now, you might have seen uh, Pastor Matt's Facebook post about this effort a few weeks ago. My wife and one of my daughters actually attended one of their trainings and uh, walked around the neighborhood uh, contacting a few convenience stores, right? And these are some of the things they learned that convenience store workers should look out for, and it behooves us to kind of look at these things as well, right? Here are some indicators. People may f appear fearful or anxious. They may avoid eye contact. They may seem malnourished or uh, have signs of physical abuse, right? Females, groups of females with similar tattoos. They've almost literally been branded, right? right? They, 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 maybe they're in the store or something like that and they're unable to speak for themselves. Somebody, you know, comes up and says, hey, don't talk to her, you know, what do you want? They, maybe they're unable to make purchases on their own. You see the store uh, employees are, are trained to look for these kind of things. And then what do you do, right? Write down the physical description. Write down the vehicle details, right? You're at the counter or something. A car pulls out, car pulls away. You know, it's a, you know, whatever. Year, make, and model, right? Note the time that they came in because that helps the police later on do their investigation so they can search the video, right? Oh, they came in around 11 o'clock. Then that really narrows the window. Uh, don't confront them in the moment. And also, don't worry about being wrong. Let the investigators investigate. I think these are really, imp uh, really important, very simple, seemingly, uh, and super-duper useful and practical things that, that all of us can do, whether we work in a convenience store or not. Okay. My point is to challenge us to do more to love our neighbors, and especially, just think about who these victims are, especially those who are the most vulnerable among us. Okay. Then lastly, taking the great commandments in reverse order and saving the greatest for last, uh, we want to love God, right? We love God, as Jesus said, by obeying him. Or as question six said this past week in our catechism, we glorify God by enjoying him, loving him, trusting him, I know the Cacciati kids know this, and by obeying his will, commands, and law. Okay? That's how we glorify God, right? And by worshiping him together, particularly at church. I have a concern that we do not prioritize church as highly as we should. You know, there are roughly 170 people who consider Delray Church their church, okay? Um, I know this because I'm one of the pastors. Pastor means shepherd. Shepherd takes care of sheep. You know, shepherds count the sheep. So informally, uh, I do this informally. Uh, you might notice me in the back when I'm not preaching. Pastorally, I take role. 
sit back there and take roll. James is doing that today. I just think it's a good idea for a pastor or shepherd to, to count and, and keep track of the sheep, and then it gives uh, me and the other leaders of the church, you know, uh, good information that helps you lead you better, right? So about, um, we think that about, uh, about 170 of us uh, count Delray Church as a church, and, and we could be called members or, or just regulars, right? Now, all 170 of us have been to church at least once over the last six months, right? All 170 of us has been to church at least once in the past six months, but you just look around the room, right? The average on any given Sunday, the last six months since August of 2021, is 82. 82 out of 170. Just regulars. I'm not even counting visitors like my mom is here visiting. Right? She always comes when I preach. 82 out of 170. I also count the visitors, just so you know. Right? Uh, that means that less than half of us on average attend church on any given Sunday. Of course, there are legitimate reasons for missing church, right? If we're sick, we love one another by staying home and not getting other people sick, right? But personally, I think that if we want to love God and glorify Him, then obeying Him, of course, is part of it. But then also getting into church um, is part of it. And I think getting into church, I would love it if it looked something like this. Yeah, those are some excited people. And that, of course, was not church. That was people in Dallas rushing to get to the Cowboy, into the Cowboys 49ers game a few weeks ago. Right? Uh, there's probably, I don't know when they opened the doors to the stadium down here, right? They probably did already. Uh, these guys are pretty excited. But what if we were just as excited to come to church? Right? I think the fact that we're not says something about our love and our worship of God, or our love for one another. But don't feel ashamed, right, or guilty, right? The scripture says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What do we do when we fall short? We come to Jesus once again, right, because he loves us. He has mercy on us. Okay? There's no condemnation. So you come to Jesus for forgiveness and grace. You repent. You resolve to do better. You work on it because we now have freedom to work on it, right? We are no longer slaves to sin. We are friends of Jesus, so we can come to him with all confidence. Now today we have used the Super Bowl as an analogy of God's love for us and how we should respond. So let's do one more thing. Now when a team is about to win a big game, the players, right, will sometimes sneak behind the coach with a big bucket of ice water or some other drink. It's a celebration. We Christians also have a celebration of Jesus' victory, and it's called the Lord's Supper, or communion. So communion is a picture of the gospel. When we take the wafer, we commemorate the fact that Jesus loved us, died, and gave himself up for us to reconcile us sinners to himself. When we drink the juice, we commemorate the fact that Jesus spilled his precious blood to secure the new covenant, the new promise that God made to save sinners. Be not because we are good, not because we merit being drafted in the first round or whatever round, but because Jesus is good. 
So let us now take the bread together. And now if you peel the foil part off of the cup, let us now also take the cup together. Our little celebration. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, God, for your love, your super love for us. Without you, we would be lost, literally lost, perishing, destined for hell, and everlasting punishment. But while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to be the savior of the world. You sent your son to die for us. And your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he loved us and gave himself up for us. This love that is beyond our comprehension. This love that we wouldn't even understand would it, were it not for other love that you showed to us, that you sent your Holy Spirit to convert our hearts and to open our eyes to behold these wonderful truths and now, Lord, as we sing, we lift up these words and, and music of, of worship to you. We love you. We praise your holy name. May the words of your gospel be on our lips, and may we love one another, may we love our neighbors, and may we love you better and better with each passing day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.